We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be taking a look at 1995's The Quick and the Dead, directed by Sam Raimi, written by Simon Moore, and starring a whole bunch of people, but including Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Before we dive in, here's a clip. I'm not sick or old, and you're not half the man I am. Round two. War fights today. Featuring the eight remaining contestants. The winner is a contestant left standing. Left alive. Left alive. From now on, we fight to the death. Well, well. What a surprise, John. You changing the rules. Any problem with that? Well, I was planning to kill you anyway. Huh. Gentlemen, the street is yours. All right, that was a clip from Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, the story of a gunslinger who is uh, traveling to the town of Redemption, to enter a gunfight uh, in which she hopes to enact revenge upon the town's, I would call him the town's owner, frankly, uh, played by Gene Hackman, uh, who basically runs the entire show. Sure, he's the mayor. He's probably pretty much a little bit of everything. Uh, as he says, he decides who lives and who dies. It's his town. Uh, so she's looking for revenge from a past traumatic incident. And along the way, she meets a extremely colorful cast of characters uh, in this sort of homage to Sergio Leone Westerns. Um, yeah, I'd say that pretty much sums it up, Rick. There's not a whole lot of plot to the quick and the dead. This is basically just a movie about gunfights. So I have a question. So every week, one of us chooses the movie. So this week, it's your pick. You chose the quick and the dead. And the thing is, I'm curious as to why you chose it. Because, okay, Sam Raimi, one of my favorite filmmakers, love his movies, Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead 1, probably on my top 10 horror movies or at least top 20 of the 20th century but this is my least favorite film from sam raimi that i've seen because there's one movie i haven't seen <laughs> i don't want to see it because i hear it's really bad it's my least favorite sam raimi film i still like it but the reason why i'm curious as to why you chose the quick and the dead is because i think this movie has a terrible screenplay and i think it's the perfect showcase as to why Sam Raimi is such a gifted filmmaker because as the director, he finds a way to take, well, maybe not a terrible screenplay. I would say... It's not a good one. It's not a good screenplay. It's just <laughs> below average. And he finds a way through his clever camera work and the way he directs the actors 
he finds a way to bring life into what should have been lifeless scenes. So like he takes a screenplay that's not very good. And he, he ends up somehow making a pretty decent Western out of it. You are a screenplay writer. You usually complain about screenplays. That is your number one nitpick when watching a movie. Yet you pick this movie with like the worst screenplay for any Sam Raimi film that I've seen. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right. So I should mention, I have seen uh, all of Sam Raimi's movies. For Love of the Game, definitely worse than The Quick and the Dead. I would also put Oz the Great and Powerful below uh, The Quick and the Dead as well. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that movie. I think like movies like Crime Wave, I don't know that I can count that one because that was still, you know, when he was just up and coming. Um, but yeah, okay. It's, uh, I, I honestly, okay, for rewatching this, I've always loved this movie, right? I love Westerns too. So big Western fan, just love the settings, love kind of the the, the cliches that uh, that, you, that go along with Westerns and all the tropes. Um, I picked this movie pretty much, well, for two reasons. One, it had its anniversary, it's 20, uh, wait, yeah, 25th anniversary in uh, February. And I thought, okay, I'd like, to, I'd like to at least talk about this movie. I love Sam Raimi, like you do. And Sam Raimi is one of the filmmakers. I, I do tend to focus more on screenplays now. But when I first wanted to become a filmmaker, Sam Raimi was one of the biggest inspirations to me. I wanted to, to shoot movies like he did. He has this incredible visual flair that is unlike anybody else. He is definitely an auteur filmmaker, highly underappreciated, I think, uh, for what he brings. He is a unique filmmaker. There is no other. You can tell a Sam Raimi movie, for the most part, uh, instantly, right? Unless he's purposely trying to... to restrain himself <laughs> like he's done successfully and unsuccessfully a couple times like for love of the game uh, but successfully with a simple plan um so i i thought this was a great example of just like you said a movie that is completely saved by style over substance because there isn't a lot of substance here this, what substance there is is kind of yeah but the style is so incredible that uh, to me this represents it's one of the most Sam Raimi-ish movies that there is. Uh, He did not write this movie, unlike some of his more, you know, other successful movies like Evil Dead 2 and Dark Man and, you know, stuff like, and Drag Me to Hell, things like that. Um, But he is all over this movie. And visually, this is about as Sam Raimi as it gets. It's one of, it's it's the kind of movie I, or kind of visual style I wish would come back. I wrote an article uh, about Drag Me to Hell uh, during its anniversary, about how that was kind of like Sam Raimi coming back home for a little bit. And, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get to see that Sam Raimi ever again. But The Quick and the Dead kind of represents the pinnacle of his visual, like, going bonkers style. And I got to say, like, rewatching this, <laughs> I think, I still think, I get such a kick out of this movie and all the inventive shots that he has. And all the different ways. Sam Raimi's very love with process, and we can talk about that later. But I love the way he gets involved with the process of gunfighting. And uh, that, to me, just the visual style is so entertaining. Combined with a Western, he finds all the right angles to shoot these things from. He somehow makes gunfights more more interesting than not. Like, with as many gunfights that are in this movie, there are a couple that I think are not handled as well as they could have been. But... um, but he has a lot of gunfights to try to make interesting and unique from each other to stand out. And I think he does a great job of it just because he's Sam Raimi. Yes, there are script problems, but I'm, I'm totally willing to look past those. This is almost a movie that I could watch silently. I think Sam Raimi, it could have had no dialogue. And I think Sam Raimi could have conveyed the entire story visually. 
Yeah, so Simon Moore clearly sat down, watched a lot of old westerns, specifically spaghetti westerns, specifically Sergio Leone westerns, and decided to write a script that would be homage and pay tribute to these films that he clearly loves. But when you compare his screenplay to, say, someone like Quentin Tarantino, it gives you more respect for Quentin Tarantino, guys who can pay homage to the movies they love growing up and still whip up something that feels fresh and new. This screenplay is, it's a boilerplate revenge tale. I was going to say something nasty. I'm not going to refrain from being too, too harsh because that's not what we do in a podcast. But it's basically, you know, it's your, it's your standard revenge tale. It's, it's, it, the only difference is that the protagonist, the hero, is a woman. So instead of having like a Clint Eastwood type of male, your standard cowboy, it's a she played by Sharon Stone. And she's seeking vengeance on the man who killed her dad. Or at least well, we think. We think. <laughs> well, she knows who killed her dad. <laughs> we, we're giving it away. She killed her dad. But he kind of like put her in a position where she wasn't forced to shoot her dad. She just bungled it and shot her dad. That's all. That is the um, most interesting twist to the screenplay. But the point is, it's basically yeah. about this cowboy seeking revenge. That said... I what I do like about it and I cannot I can't give credit to the screenplay writer. I really do think you have to give credit to Sam Raimi, but it's because oh. every single shootout because essentially we have roughly like a dozen or maybe 10 I think it's 10 uh, some of them are done via montage, but uh but but there's at least like a good 10 yeah, duels or 8 or 10 that are actually full-fledged gunfights so there's 10 people who participate in the contest and the contest rules specify that you don't necessarily have to kill someone at the start you just have to like win the draw but then of course gene hackman's character changes the rules and then you do have to actually kill the person but the point is there are 10 people but what i do like about each gunfight is that each gunfight tells a story and it tells a story specifically about the two participants right and i just thought it was really cool how you have a screenplay that is I mean, it's bare bones. There's not much to it. It doesn't say much about most of the characters except for maybe the protagonist. And even that in itself isn't much, right? We just know that she's seeking revenge for someone killed her dad because of flashbacks, by the way. And I hate flashbacks. It's the worst way to tell a story. We'll talk about that later, yeah. And we should say that, like, Sharon Stone was de- was the one who was producing this and was developing this screenplay as well. Like, this was supposed to be a vehicle for her. It was kind of her thing. Unfortunately, she is her character, uh, Ellen, who is supposed to be a mysterious, you know, person with no name. But but Russell Crowe does call her Ellen at one point. She is the most boring character in the movie. For sure. But but again, like I do like the way each gunfight tells a story. You know, for example, when you have Leo DiCaprio's character, the kid, and he has to face his opponent, which happens to be his dad, played by Gene Hackman. There's a story to be told there. So that is really cool. Speaking of which, she mentioned Sharon Stone. She was cast in a movie, but she made a deal with the studio that I would do it if I could be a producer. Because like you said, she was looking for a different sort of role. She wanted to be sort of like an action star, which is really cool because this movie was made like forever ago, way before like Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel. And so it it wasn't typical. I mean, we had like Terminator and like Aliens, but it was it was rare that it would be like a, a woman in the lead of an action film, right? But she's the one who actually 
specifically asked for Sam Raimi. She said, if you do not hire Sam Raimi, I will not do the movie because she was a huge fan of Evil Dead. She saw Army of Darkness. She Army loved Darkness. it. And yep. so she's like, I will only do it if you hire Sam Raimi because she saw potential in him as a filmmaker in Hollywood and Leo DiCaprio. So that's amazing. And she actually paid Leo's salary. The studio did not want him at the time because he was a nobody. And uh, he had had an Oscar nomination. He did have an Oscar nomination for what's eating Gilbert Grape, but the studio didn't want him. So she paid his salary. She also fought for Russell Crowe. Yes, I know. Which is baffling because, I mean, this is like, okay, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, this movie came out long before Russell Crowe was a household name. Leo DiCaprio, of course, he was in Growing Pains and he did a few things, but he wasn't really like the Leo DiCaprio that we know now from, from being a star from filming Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. He was still sort of like Titanic. Right. So like they all have supporting roles. The two main characters here are Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman. And of course, Gene Hackman gives one of the best performances in any Sam Raimi film. He steals the show. He is amazing. He's one of the best villains in any Sam Raimi film. And I would love to see him work with Sam Raimi again, just fantastic performance. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like a cast of it's an amazing cast when you actually think about it, especially looking back now when you've got Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio. Then you've got classic Western people. Well, you've got like Tobin Bell. Uh, you've got uh, Gary Sinise has a role. And this was post Forrest Gump uh, when, he, when he was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, you've also got classic Woody Strode who is, uh, I always loved in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the John Wayne movie, John Ford, John Wayne movie, um, and Jimmy Stewart. And you've got Pat Hingle, who made it, you know, is definitely memorable in Clint Eastwood movies like Hang Em High, uh, also just a veteran of a ton of Westerns. Like, this movie's loaded with people you recognize. It's got uh, Lance Henriksen. <laughs> like, it's just faces upon faces. And they create, the casting was so, it was so brilliant because they, create these characters more than the screenplay does the actors are allowed it seems like sam ray this this is a good showcase for how he dealt with actors and he would go on to become somebody who was who actors really like to work with and he was known for for being good with actors after this uh you know movies like a simple plan really brought that out but you can see he let people kind of go loose and kept control of the chaos but they were able to create such unique, a unique side characters, totally memorable side characters all the way around. And it has nothing to do with the screenplay. You also have Keith David and Gary Sinise. Keith David. I didn't even mention him. The thing. And yeah, it's like it, it, it's uh, it's such an amazing cast when you look back at it now. Just a face after face that you recognize. Watching this movie, I totally forgot that Leo DiCaprio is in this movie. So I watched it again this week. I haven't seen this movie in years. And I was like, oh my God, is that Leo DiCaprio? And like, he looks so young. He looks so healthy. He's like, he's really good in this movie. He plays the kid. He's totally like perfectly cast for the role. Uh, I love to watch him opposite of Gene Hackman. He, he's just like, he's, I'm a huge fan of him. I, I've always been a fan of him. I, I think he was great. in what's eating Gilbert grape. Uh, I really liked him in uh, Romeo and Juliet. And yeah, he's he's really good in Titanic and so on and so forth. Of course, The Wolf on Wall Street. But like, it's just it's 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 like a time capsule. Like you're, you're watching these actors like Russell Crowe before he's even a superstar before Gladiator. It was his first American movie. First American movie. He plays a preacher. 
Uh, well, gunfighter, gunfighter turned preacher. He used yes. to, he used to like so. From my understanding, in the movie, his character used to run with the character of Gene Hackman. He was one of his henchmen. Yeah, he was like his 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 basically he was a uh, his his close aide or his close, you know second in command kind of guy. Like they were, he saw a lot of uh, Gene Hackman's character Herod, uh, who is obviously older than Russell Crowe, saw a lot of potential in this young man. Uh, as a killer and as a as you know as a partner, and so he kind of groomed him. Uh, and a, an, an incident happened that Russell Crowe's character Court tells the story of, where uh, Court decided he didn't want to run with Herod anymore, and um, that was where they they had their their parting. I uh, I love the visual style, like you you've already touched on it, but it, it's like like the thing about like the thing about the movie is that I'm not entirely sure if this is a B-movie, like, would you consider it a B-movie? Because it has, like, these really funky special effects. Like, for example, there is that one shot where the camera follows the bullet, and the bullet goes right through the head of one of the um, the bounty hunters. And so then you see the camera shot from behind, and you see the hole on his head. And there's also this fantastic shot where afterwards, after someone gets shot, it's when Gene Hackman's character gets shot, actually, we see his shadow... And you see the hole, like you basically see, you you know where he was shot, like in the chest, because the shadow, there's a hole in the actual shadow. And I thought that was genius. Yeah. And that was alluded to earlier in the very first scene yes. when uh, Ellen gets shot at and it go, the bullet goes through her hat and they have a very a similar shot of the hole. You see her shadow and there's a hole in her hat kind of symbolizing. I would call this a B movie with an A movie budget. Uh, it was shot for $35 million, which in 1995 was not like an outrageous budget, but it was an A movie budget at the time. That's a lot of money. That's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't gross very much, but I would say it's got a B movie spirit. And it's one of those movies where like when Ace Hanlon comes in, the Lance Herrick Hendrickson character, you know, uh, Sharon Stone's character Ellen is is standing at the bar, and the shadow is like 30 feet long. It's all these these kind of Western things taken to a comic book extreme. And uh, that's why I would give it sort of this B movie idea. Even the, the practical effects, like you mentioned, the bullet going through the guy's head, there's a B movie kind of quality to it. It's not supposed to appear realistic and gruesome. It's supposed to be almost funny in its like gruesomeness. Well, it's so uh, similar I, to evil dead, like in terms of like the way he shoots it, like the camera shots, you have the shot, the camera to continuously tilts. So the camera will tilt and you'll see the clock tower. And that in itself looks like the pa a panel of a comic book. So you can actually pause the movie at several points throughout the shootouts. And it will look like you, you could be, you could be forgiven for thinking it came from the panel of a comic book. But I mean, the way his camera just swerves and the way he does, you know, the Hitchcock dolly and zoom at the exact same time, the, the, the specific lens that he uses, like the edits, the way he cuts, like he'll cut from, you know, and again, we see this in a lot of classic spaghetti westerns, but you'll get the close up of the eyes, you'll get the close up of the eyes of the opponent, and then you'll get the close up of the lips, and you'll get the, the close up of the cowboy boots, and you'll get the far shot, and you'll get the the camera that zooms in and the camera that dollies in like, and it's just like this shot reverse shot. It's like the Sam Raimi, like uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like not the technique, but it's his go-to style. It's like the way Spike Lee has the same thing. Like he does it too, like the zoom and the dolly. Like, once again, harkening back to the, the days of like Hitchcock, but you just know, I mean, if you know who Sam Raimi is and you've seen any Sam Raimi film, 
or at least, you know, the good ones, the, the, the better ones, you know, you would know that this is directed by him. Yeah, and it's it's a bunch of different shots. And that's the that's what amazes me every time I watch this movie is that at any point you'd think that he'd take a breather with the imagination, but he doesn't. And it starts from the very get go when you follow a long tracking shot as you hear kind of grunting and then there's digging and the camera is sort of swirling around Tobin Bell's whatever the hell he is. He's clearly some kind of crook murderer guy out in the middle of the, the plains digging, looking up, looking for buried gold. Um, before he runs across Alan. And Raimi does it right away. And Sam Raimi movies don't generally use landscape very much. He is definitely a close quarters kind of director. Most of the action in his movies take place without, you don't see epic landscapes in, in his movies very often. I would say A Simple Plan is the one that came closest to using broader landscapes. But even that movie stays generally pretty constricted. Um, and this movie is probably the perfect Western for him because even though he does a fantastic job with the opening vistas and he does have some very beautiful shots um, of the town at sunset and things like that from afar, uh, he, he he gets to work on, on one street and one saloon and, you know, very, again, very tight spaces. He can, he can manage things because his camera movements kind of need that. They need objects so that his camera can warp the perspective of those objects and you can't really do that with a with a wide open landscape um, but it's little things there's a shot early on when court is first uh, brought into the bar and they're about to hang him right because he won't enter the contest he's renounced violence at this point and uh there's a shot that's looking down the barrel of gene hack it's about to to shoot the last legs out of the chair so it's a one continuous shot and this is to me it perfectly exemplifies sam raimi and how he tells stories with these shots they're not just for style it, it, it's giving you like a moment it's building up tension I, I i feel like hitchcock would be proud even though he would never go this crazy with his camera he would get it so it's like you're staring down the barrel as he pulls the the trigger back the camera quickly swish pans over to court court's face russell crowe's face who's now nervous knowing that he's about to die and in, and in the exact same shot the way he's positioned everything it sort of swish pans over now you see a profile of the gun but in the background is Ellen, and it rack focuses back to her. Now she's she jumps up and says that she's going to enter the contest as a way of distracting uh, everybody from you know distracting Herod from shooting the legs out from under the chair. And in this little one like pivot shot that you 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 kind of get the entire situation boiled down to one shot. And I love how he uses all these different techniques to do that. There's there's so many scenes where he uses zooms, snap zooms, really. Uh, effectively to show what a character is honing uh, homing in on what they're what they're focusing on like when um they're in leonardo DiCaprio's character the kid the kid owns a gun shop and it, herod goes in to buy court a pistol so that he can actually have have his duel because he's a preacher and he's un unarmed but DiCaprio spins the the chamber uh of a of a revolver and the whizzing sound, as the sound whizzes, like the camera snap zooms on Russell Crowe's face because it's like now you've got his attention. It's coming back to him. All those days that he spent as a killer, as a gunfighter, like he is turned on by this. This is this revs him up and you can see his juices get going. And shots like like using a snap zoom like that as opposed to some slow zoom or just cutting to it, it really quickens everything up. It starts to get your blood pumping a little bit, just like it, it's getting quartz blood pumping. Yeah, I mean, this is like one of the most slick-looking westerns of... When did this movie come out? 1995. Yeah, of the past, like, 30 years, I would say. I mean, clearly it's not as great of a movie as uh, Unforgiven or... 
mean, there's been tons of great westerns, no. but it's no, a thematically it's style. empty. It's yeah. not like uh, the assassination of Jesse James. Like that movie is gorgeous to look at. It's got incredible cinematography. Mm-hmm. This is like a, this is like this is Sam Raimi's movie from start to finish, every single frame. Like as good as Gene Hackman is, and I do think he steals the show. It is Sam Raimi's movie, and like just everything about it, like from the way he composes his shots to the way he gets his actors to deliver their lines and how he wants them to stand. And like there's there's that great shot, like when you're talking about that scene when he buys the gun. Like I even like the way they get Russell Crowe's character into the gun shop. Like the guy basically kicks him in. He falls over. You got the camera low on the floor. It's sort of like tilted. His head falls right in front of the camera. So now it's like a close up of his head. And then he cuts to the shot in which you see the man standing outside with like he's framed with the actual door. It, it's beautiful. And like you see that in a lot of John Ford movies, but in a completely different manner where the guy is standing and he's being framed by the door, and you see the background on the outside. In this case, the man is lying on the floor, and he's got sort of like this wide-angle lens. It's just like, it's fantastic. Um, it's one of those, like, the thing is, I always talk about this on the podcast. Like, when I watch a movie, what matters first and foremost to me is the visual storytelling and the way the movie looks. Because I'm, like, I like, you know, clearly I want a good script, but that's not my what I look for first. Like, I look at the way they tell a story visually and I'm into cinematography and camera movement. And, you know, when I used to make short films, I was the camera operator. Pietro Scalia. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie is a lot of Oscar who would become future Oscar winners, Dante uh, Spinotti and Pietro Scalia ended up winning for black Hawk down, but it's cut a lot of, uh, a lot of great movies. But I also like the way he's always focusing on time. So if it's not the pocket watches that we get a close-up of, it's the clock tower. And you will see the clock tower in the background because while you're waiting for these two people to draw their guns and there's but there's a chance that one of them is going to die, he, he builds attention. Like you said, like Hitchcock would be proud. And it, it has a lot to do with the arrangement of shots, the close-ups, the editing, and also by never letting you forget the fact that the clock is ticking and in about 10 seconds or 30 seconds or one second someone's gonna have to pull a trigger and we've seen this a lot in older classic westerns like Sergio Leone uh, but never done quite like this and probably because back then they didn't really have like the the resources I'm not I mean I'm this by the way this movie is shot on film and edited on film <laughs> like this is like Nowadays, they would just use digital camera. It would be a lot of green screen and everything would be touched up in post-production. And that's why when I watch these old movies and then I watch newer movies with even bigger budgets and I'm like, how how is it possible that they were able to do these movies, create these movies that look and sound better with less technology, less of a budget and less like and time was an issue because like we've talked about this on the podcast before in the past. When you're shooting digital, you're not worried so much about time because it's you can fix everything in post. And you have like 16 different cameras capturing 16 different like angles. When you're shooting on a film, every shot matters. And if, if, if something happens with that can of film, the frame or whatever, you can lose an entire scene and have to reshoot it, which is not you know practical when you're working on a tight budget. No, and you won't even know because you're going to have to fly that film probably back to Los Angeles to be processed and and wait for the dailies to come back today. Uh, it, 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 it's a tough thing to 
do. And creativity is born, I think, out of limitation when it comes to filmmakers. And that's why people who are given massive budgets often don't uh, walk away with the most creative movie. They're they're allowed to indulge their excesses. Sam Raimi is definitely allowed to <laughs> indulge his excesses, but his excesses are creativity. And that's where I think like this movie can actually work. That's what the, you know, you're right. That is why it's completely his movie. But I also think he is absolutely at the peak of his game simply because he is dealing with a weak script. He is dealing with weekly drawing characters. Uh, and he manages to find all sorts of ways to convey this stuff. Like you're talking about the clocks. What's so Sam Raimi about this is that he, he sets up the clock right away from the opening shot. It's just kind of in the background. You know, as as Ellen's riding into town, he doesn't call attention to it. But over the course of the movie, he calls more and more and more and more attention to that clock tower. Uh, I, I love the shot when everybody's like synchronizing their watch <laughs> or sorry, they're all looking at their watches. Right. And they're, they're looking at the clock. They're looking at their watches. And then that one guy has to actually sync his watch. To me, those little bits of comedy, too, like he plays around with the time thing so much so that, you know, that as soon as that clock ticks, those guns are going to be drawn except for the gunfight between Court and Ellen when the clock strikes and nobody draws their guns. And now he's he's subverted your expectations a little bit right there. Uh, and, and even Gene Hackman is now looking at the clock and he eventually tells them, somebody needs to fire or you're both going to die. Um, so he, he finds ways to to make something super important, have a little fun with that, and then maybe subvert that and use that later on to build character. Uh, which he does for both of those two people because they they put on a little performance for Herod there, and you kind of get to see a little bit of what they're, you know, what they're like as far as that goes. Um, and I again, I think that's that's mostly him. I, I'm sure you know the, it was written in the screenplay maybe that they don't fire at each other, but it's Sam Raimi using that clock visually throughout the entire movie that places such importance on that moment and makes that moment jarring when those guns are not drawn when it strikes. Man, because the screenplay overall seems to lack imagination and a bit of humor. I kind of feel like with the rewrites, because like you said, Sharon Stone, I think asked him to rewrite it. I'm not entirely sure who was involved in the process apart from Simon. John, John sales took a pass at this script. Well, also Joss Whedon. And so that's why I'm trying yeah, to figure out like how much yeah. of their input, because they're not credited as screenplay writers. No, but like, Whedon first... was the ending. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I thought. But for example, there's a character here in this movie. He's Native American. I think his name is Spotted Horse. And so Spotted there's horse, yeah. his, the whole thing about his character, like his shtick is that apparently he's been shot like multiple times. I think like seven times in the chest and like eight times in the shoulder and twice in the head. And he's still alive. And so his whole thing is like a bullet cannot kill me. And so when yeah. he does the shootout, he gets shot. And it's Russell Crowe's the preacher who's technically, you know, this the second protagonist of the movie he yeah. shoots him and so he he shoots him in the heads and so the guy should be dead and everyone thinks he's dead and they play this like trick on the audience where you know everyone's celebrating and like about 60 seconds later he gets up and it turns out he's not dead but the preacher russell crowe's preacher is only given one bullet and so he has no more bullets left but he needs to kill him so that that whole sequence is amazing but i just like the touch like the way each character has this it's like they're like they're like it's like you know we go back to the the, the comparison points to like a comic book and superheroes like each of them has their own gimmick and or superpower and or ability like something that makes each of these guys special and stand out and in the case mm -hmm. of spotted horse it's the fact that apparently bullets don't kill him until finally it finally does because they shoot him straight through the brains so i like all that to me like 
it's like if, if you told me that this was based on a comic book, I would believe you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a continuation of what he was doing with Darkman and Army of Darkness, which are very comic booky in the way that they're I, they're, they're such unique movies um, that it, it's it, there's I, I I miss this this Sam Raimi. I miss him a lot actually because I love seeing this kind of inventive style, and he's had to tone things down, and you see elements of it here and now, like the, the in Spider Man Two in the hospital scene that was that was classic Sam Raimi right there, and there there are other moments, you know, even in the Oz the Great and Powerful, he has a couple of moments, but I miss this kind of Gonzo Sam Raimi where he went on that run of of you know Evil Dead Two, Dark Man, Army of Darkness, The Quick and the Dead. Like so that to me is such a great run of visual movies, movie uh, making, that I kind of wish it, it came back for good. I, I'm glad we got Drag Me to Hell. At least we got one more go at it if we never see it again. But uh, yeah, that, this, this is the kind of movie that makes me nostalgic for that singular directorial voice that you just don't see as distinctly or as distinct as you as as someone like him. Uh, you just I, I don't see that as much anymore. So he made this movie before Spider-Man. And I don't, I don't know if you remember back in the day, but the number one, um, the big rumor at the time was Leo DiCaprio was supposed to be cast as Spider-Man. And I don't know if that was, if if the connection was made through to Quicken the Dead because Sam Raimi directed this movie and then went on to make Spider-Man. But now it kind of makes sense in retrospect. Of course, they ended up getting Tobey mm-hmm. Maguire uh, because I think he went on to do Titanic, right? Uh, he did. He did Titanic in '97, and I believe the original Spider-Man came out in 2001. The first Spider-Man came out in 2001, right? I think or it was 2002. 2000. 2000. Okay, yeah. So it would have been. I mean, DiCaprio would have been a tough get, get after Titanic. Everybody wanted him, and his salary would have, you know, obviously skyrocketed. Uh, and maybe they couldn't do that with all the other effects that they were getting on. But I'm sure, you know, it's very possible that that Raimi would have talked to him at that point. It was going to be a mega movie, and you know. That was a good script. <laughs> uh, it's I, I. He's never worked with any of those other actors again, to my knowledge. Sharon Stone, uh, Russell Crowe. You know, he's never done any, anything else with them. Uh, Raimi has a, a he, you know, Dark Man. He he cast an unknown Liam Neeson. You know, who would later go on to become a megastar. He has found people that that you know were not necessarily stars. Now he's a big enough. You know, he's a Hollywood guy and he can afford to. to he he can cast stars. His movies get those budgets, but he definitely he was able to find people back in the day, which is kind of interesting. Um, not only Liam Neeson, but he also had Francis McDormand. So, you know, who would go on to win an Oscar not too much longer for Fargo, uh, not too much further after that. Yeah, so it, it's. But it, the Quick of the Dead is just to me like that is that this is the pinnacle of what he is. He is a comic book. Kind of kind of guy i mean he's often been described as kind of a ringmaster you know he's a circus entertainer in many ways and i don't think he takes any umbrage with that i think he's fine with that being an entertainer and not necessarily a a quote-unquote serious filmmaker right even though he has done serious movies like a simple plan which i think is an absolutely brilliant uh you know crime story Um, so i'm just looking over the internet movie database and he's still making movies he's going to be directing the next Doctor Strange movie, which should be interesting. It's just it's just interesting to see how, how what's happened with him since this movie. Because, okay, he went from this to do a simple plan, and I agree. It's a fantastic movie. I haven't seen For, for the Love of the Game. It's the only Sam Raimi movie I haven't seen because I heard it's terrible. Uh, the Gift, I really like that movie. Not as good as Simple Plan. But, like, yeah, then he did Spider-Man. Yeah, One, movie. two, three, Drag Me to Hell. I like The Oz, The Great and Powerful. 
Um, he did a lot of TV work. But yeah, I don't think he's worked with any one of these actors ever again. No, and I mean, other than Bruce Campbell, I can't necessarily point to anybody that Sam Raimi has worked with multiple times. Um, you know, I, he didn't. He does work with some character actors. You know, Gary Cole has shown up in a couple of things. Um, but, you know, he's never worked with Clay, Kate Blanchett again, other than the, the Spider-Man movies, of course. And, oh, and, you know, James Franco was in the Osner and Powerful. But that, that's right. about it. So, like, he, he did the three Spider-Man movies and obviously worked with all those actors again. And he, and he did Osner and Powerful to James Franco. But other than that, he doesn't – maybe that's just not his thing. You know, Bruce Campbell hangs around and gets cameos. And Bruce Campbell apparently did, was going to maybe have a cameo in this as a guest at a wedding. And all of his parts got cut. I think he played several different background shemps, as they call them, and they all got cut out of the movie. But he still gets a credit in the role in the end uh, because he's Bruce Campbell. And, and those two will always be kind of locked together because of the Evil Dead movies. And um, so but, um, Spider-Man did come out in 2002. Okay, yeah. It, it makes sense. DiCaprio was a big star at that point. Um, it's so easy to see in this movie that he is a, a movie star. Like he just has yeah, the kid has swagger as a character, but DiCaprio gives him that swagger more so than I think he otherwise would have had. For such a gangly guy, you kind of buy it. You buy the swagger, and he has so much fun in this role. It'd be sort of fun to see DiCaprio. Well, he has played a similar, I guess, loosey goosey kind of role in, in Wolf of Wall Street. But yeah, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> everybody's having a blast. And I also have to attribute that to Sam Raimi. Like I say, every one of these, these supporting actors, they create rich characters with very few lines of dialogue that convey character. Uh, when you think of Keith David, like the, the pompous arrogance he brings to that guy, that's not written in. Not really. There's one line maybe where that's written in and that's where they, they ask how he spells his name and he says correctly. But the incredible pause <laughs> before he says those words as he puffs on his pipe. Keith David brings all of that to the character. Uh, every time he stands like his posture and uh, everything, basically everything about everything that he does, the way his mustache is, is twirled up perfectly and the way his clothes are so perfectly neat. Uh, David and brings all of that. Lance Henriksen brings the sleazy oiliness to his gunfighter, his uh, card. You know, I mean, I guess you'd call him a shootist, right? He was just somebody who did, who did tricks, uh, shoot gun, gun tricks, you know, shooting cards out of people's hands and stuff like that. Um, but he brings like the way that he, his hair is so long and the way that he kind of, uh, preens with it occasionally. And the, the <laughs> <laughs> and twirls his own mustache like it's a different kind of mustache like it's very slick and it almost like uh you know what is that guy snidely or whatever from the the, the rocky and bullwinkle cartoons he's he just comes across as an absolute creep uh you know the the, the pervert uh brothel owner you know that guy i he couldn't have been could not have been more than an ugly he, he could have easily just come across as an ugly brute whatever who occasionally you know makes a couple of chuckles in the script but and does a, a couple of creepy things but this guy really really pulls it off with all of his mannerisms that's what everybody seems to get they all they all create it seems like they all created wonderful backstories for their characters that allowed them to bring that to the table. And so the, the, the very little time you spend with them, you get to know them quite a bit and they all still stand out for me. Yeah. It's a good movie. 
The only thing I'm going to say before we cut the break is while watching a movie, I couldn't help but notice the music. And I think I was focusing more heavily on the music than I normally do because of our, our conversation last week about Brazil. But at one point in time, I was like, that sounds like Back to the Future. And sure enough, the composer is the same guy who did the music for Back to the Future. He also did the music for movies like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Polar Express. So clearly he likes to work with Zemeckis. Uh, the soundtrack isn't bad, though. Yeah, and I guess the studio hired Alan uh, Silvestri, I believe is his name, to uh, um, to come in because Sam Raimi's normal composer, Joseph Loduca, you know, wasn't had never scored a Western before, and they wanted somebody who could score a Western. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> I guess if that's a reason why you've never scored a Western before, <laughs> I guess. But it is catchy music, and I sometimes get it. I had it stuck in my head the next day. After, it's a good score, and it definitely sort of it captures the... Um, I think the comic book flavor of this movie, this very much is a comic book movie. It's, it's a continuation of what Raimi was doing with dark man. I think it's not as edgy as that. Uh, it's definitely more along the fun lines. The whole concept of having these, um, what is a proper terminology when you have a standoff, like you have a standoff, but like, what is the terminology for it? Like in terms of like, you're not going to say it's the, the match. It's a duel. It's a duel, so it's not a tournament. Because it isn't a duel just the duel is like the two people, but then it's a tournament, so it's a duel within a tournament, or is it like a shooting tournament? Yeah, it's it's like a it's a it's a tournament of duels. It's a they're tournament. bracketed, just like you would bracket the NCAA <laughs> tournaments, you know. I was just so. never I was never entirely sure how you would you know, I guess the uh, I, whatever it doesn't matter. So anyhow, what was I saying here? The showdown, you know, it, it would be like a showdown in a Western, essentially, okay, but, but it's a series of, it's controlled planned showdowns but for the, the most con- part. the concept of it and the idea of like this myth of like these cowboys back in the day in the old West where they would ro- walk into town and they would have a duel, that's just a myth. Like, nobody actually did that. So technically, it's no different than what you would find in a comic book in terms of like, you got the hero and you have the bad guys. It's, it's a classic tale of good versus evil. It's just that these specific characters in the old old west are portrayed like superheroes and super villains so it totally makes sense for sam raimi to step in as the director and visually and not just visually but the whole entire film like the feel the look the sound to make it seem like a comic book movie so for me that is why it works even even if despite the fact that the screenplay is just not very good yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we can we'll talk a little bit more in detail about, you know, things that we think are wrong with it when we get to our next segment. Um, but for now, let's hear another clip from The Quick of the Dead. Drop out. You've made your point. The gunfight is in the head. Not in the hands. The only thing that makes him invincible because you all think he is. Maybe five years ago he was the fastest. But, uh, time catches up with everyone. He's just a little bit slower than he used to be. And as for myself, would you believe it? I just reached my peak.
Shit, that was fast. All right, that was another clip from Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. Uh, so we've come to the point in the podcast where we kind of, you know, parse out certain things that we like and what we don't like. Uh, so very first question is always a positive one. Rick, what was your favorite scene in The Quick and the Dead? I think my favorite scene, and I think it's actually maybe the best scene, is Harold versus the kid, his son, in the duel. And mm-hmm. mostly because we've already talked about it at the start of the podcast, but it's the way Sam Raimi films the entire sequence. The way he uses that dolly zoom to warp the scene, the way he changes the speed of the film and the lenses and the way he cuts from a close up of the watch to a close up of the gun to a close up of the holster to a close up of the clock tower and then shows a far shot. But you still see the clock tower in the background. So you never lose sight of how much time is left before it strikes. What is it? Noon. And then they have to like draw their guns. So that entire sequence, the way it's shot, edited and also, of course, the relationship between Gene Hackman's character, Harold, and his son, played by DiCaprio, it's one of the most, I mean, it's probably the most emotional scene in, in the entire film. I mean, because I'll get to why later when we talk about Sharon Stone's character. But, um, yeah, and also I think it was somewhat unexpected. Like, I kind of, like, figured that would happen because you're not going to kill Gene Hackman's character, who is the big bad because that just the movie would be over and you still have a lot of story to tell so it makes sense that you're going to kill the kid but at the same time it kind of still felt unexpected because they both do get shot right like the kid does shoot him he just doesn't shoot him in he's the right fast. spots yeah yeah so he, he survives. is fast i think i, I was going to say uh, the exact same thing is not not uh, not picking the scene but it is the most emotional scene in the movie because of the, that's the actual relationship that has the most power behind it and the most realism i their interactions of the movie their interactions are what make herod an interesting villain he is a super villain there's no question gene hackman has a great time with that villain but he gives some shades through the interaction with the kid he doesn't want the kid to be in the contest he constantly belittles him because supposedly this was from a dalliance and this kid is a you know he's a, a, a i don't know if we want to say bastard but that's what he is um and uh, Gene Hackman has never formally or publicly admitted to being the kid's father, but it's kind of known. Um, the kid knows it. Gene Hackman clearly knows it because he takes some responsibility for the kid, even though he belittles constantly and uh, you know doesn't want to doesn't want to hear that they're anything alike. Uh, he tries to talk him out of the tournament. He tries to tell him that it's not his time. You know that he can he can do it later. He tries to warn him away from the, the duel, saying, "I'm not old and I'm I'm not weak. I'm not slow. Get out of this." And he and he and he also tells him, "No shame. Bow out now. Don't I don't want to have to kill you. There's no shame in this." And he's saying it to him privately, not bragging out in public. And that's how you that's how you know that there is some kind of complex relationship here because he's not saying it in front of everybody. He's not trying to embarrass the kid out of the contest. He's trying to get him privately out because he doesn't want to kill him and he knows he'll have to. Um, and the kid just wants respect, which is, you know, the, the scene where he reaches for for Gene Hackman is probably the most emotional scene in, or the most emotional shot in the entire movie is Hackman just stares down at him and won't reach out his hand. That's that's a good thing for DiCaprio and Gene Hackman because they do such a good job in their performance. It's a bad thing in terms of screenplay and Sharon Stone's character. But I think the reason why it's my favorite scene and maybe the best scene is because 
he is the most likable character. Like the kid is actually in my eyes, the hero in the movie. He's, he, he doesn't really have a bad bone in his body. He's trying to prove something. He's not in the contest because he actually wants to kill someone. He's not there for revenge. He's not there because whatever. He's participating in a contest just like, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin will walk into the wrestling ring and compete in the WWE. Um, but it also separates Gene Hackman's character from the rest of the quote-unquote villains because we already know what kind of man he is. And he is the main baddie. He is the, the villain of the movie. But... When he participates in the duel, he's no different than everyone else. Like, he's just participating in the tournament. But that scene, because he has to kill his son, it changes his character. And it makes him someone that is just a horrible person. Because we still haven't yet seen the flashback, like the full flashback sequence that shows exactly what happened to Sharon Stone's dad when she was younger. Mm -hmm. Because up until then, he's going to kill people who are already trying to assassinate him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could argue he's a dick, obviously, throughout the entire thing, but you haven't seen any of the pure cruelty, uh, unless you count him almost hanging court in the in the thing. But we don't really know what their relationship is at that point in time. Um, yeah, so it, it's a very interesting scene. I, I like that. It's probably my favorite duel as well. I wouldn't say uh, my favorite actual scene is a uh, oh, it's 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 a montage essentially. And I don't know if you want to call it a scene, but it's right before the gunfights actually start. And this is what I love about Sam Raimi. There's something with him and the process, right? He loves the process of things. Uh, a lot of times in his movies, he'll show you, like in Drag Me to Hell, there's a specific shot where where uh, the girl is fighting the the old gypsy woman in the in her shed. And as she's struggling, getting overtaken by this gypsy woman she sees a little a rope attached attached to the ground. And then she looks up the rope and it, it goes across the ceiling. And then she looks over again and it goes across the ceiling to a pulley. Or sorry, to a uh, uh, an anvil, which for some reason is in the shed of a woman who lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> but uh, that anvil is right directly over the head of you know Mrs. Ganush, the gypsy woman. And it's it's these series of shots that show you all in one step, you know, the way that the, the what's going to happen. And Raimi does that a lot. And he loves showing things like Ash putting together his chainsaw, you know, strapping the chainsaw to his arm and, and getting ready. Uh, so I love the scene with the guns when, when people are oiling their guns and priming because there's different sorts of guns that uh, um, are in this movie. There's some with shells and there are some that are, are not. They're, they're round shot. And some of them prime their bullets. They take very specific care because there's little tricks that you can do uh, in order to make sure that your gun is working properly, won't jam at the wrong time. And he shows the mechanical nature of all this. And he does it with a lot of shots that are where the camera is seemingly attached to the gun. So you have just a lot of mechanical movements, too, that really gets the sort of cold, uh, professional nature of this. This is an organic experience. This isn't or these aren't or these aren't organic gunfights. They are cold, logical, professional, mechanical gunfights where people are going out not for the pleasure of killing, but this is a job that they're doing to make money. And I love, I just love that montage, and I could watch it all day long of of people like it, it is definitely gun porn. <laughs> if you're, I mean, it totally is, but in the most comic book way possible. And it really speaks to these characters because it shows how each one of them individually takes care of the weapon that takes care of them, that protects their life. And they do it in different ways. They each have different guns, different styles of guns. And that 
also speaks to their character. It's just a wonderful thing with absolutely no dialogue. It's just good music and a montage of each characters doing their thing. Typical Sam Raimi trademark. <laughs> I love it. I love his trademarks. I really do. Uh, all right. So now we now we're going to really get into it. If there was only one thing you could change, just one, Rick, you can't pick multiple, but one thing that you could change about The Quick and the Dead, what would it be? The flashbacks. I really don't like flashbacks. Anyone who knows me, anyone who's listened to this podcast for a long time knows I do not like flashbacks. I think it's a lazy way to tell a story and to get a point across. I think there are other ways you can tell that story. Um, you can have her have a conversation with someone at the bar. You can have her hint at what might have happened. Now, in terms of like being a homage to Spaghetti Westerns, you see that a lot in those Spaghetti Westerns. So I'm willing to forgive it. And I do like the twist at the end when we realize that she technically, well, she didn't technically, she killed her dad. She's the one that shot the dad. Um, so I do like... I do like it because we get the twist. I just would have preferred there was like maybe an, uh, a prologue and an epilogue. So like maybe you see it at the start of the movie and then at the end of the movie you get the twist. But not to have flashbacks throughout the entire film because it breaks up the pacing and the rhythm of the movie, I think. Yeah, it does. And it's way too serious. That's the other thing. Raimi tries to do little stylish things with it, you know, with it being in slow motion a lot of the time and, and the sound echoes and stuff. You know, it's all like a dream. She's dreaming a lot of the time. But uh, I mean, the, the, I, my choice is exactly the same. If I could only do one thing, and there's several things that I would pick in this movie. There's, there's characters I might get rid of, like the little blind kid who sells stuff. I just don't think he does a very good very good job and serves any purpose and also the the doctor who's just overly emotional the entire time um but yeah the flashbacks are the thing i would definitely get rid of uh, sorry gary sinise you'd be cut out of this movie um it uh it not only slows the pacing but it doesn't contribute a damn thing to her character her character she might as well just not have a revenge story i almost feel like she would have just been better off being the man with no name why did she have, you know, Clint Eastwood's character never had the motivation for doing the stuff that he was doing. And, uh, you know, the, it was one thing in for a few dollars more for, for there to be flashbacks showing what the villain did, because that actually gave the villain this kind of sick, demented, emotional resonance because he himself got emotional over what he did, uh, which was kind of interesting. But you didn't need that for Clint Eastwood's character. You, you had it. Okay, fine. You had it. The flashbacks weren't there for Lee, Lee Van Cleef, by the way, who was the one getting revenge. Uh, um, they were there for the villain. <laughs> like the, it was. It was all about how the villain perceived this horrible thing that he did. Um, it wasn't like Lee Van Cleef was constantly thinking about it. So, yeah, and you didn't need one at all for Eastwood. It's not the end of the world. I still think the movie works. And again. If anything, the flashbacks serve a purpose, if if only to have that twist at the end. So, yeah, I guess, I guess, I just feel like you know what it, they they actually was the, because of the flashbacks. You asked too many questions about Sharon Stone's character. You know, where did she go after her dad was killed? How did she learn to be a gunfighter? Why is it taking her so long to get her revenge on this guy? Whereas if she was just this person that wandered into town for this gunfight in order to make a profit because Eastwood's heroes were always anti-heroes, right? So if she was just there for the money, that might have made her more interesting. And we wouldn't ask any questions about her background. I don't need to know where she came from or why, where she learned to shoot a gun. I never asked that about the man with no name. And honestly, I still don't care. I don't care where he's from. He's just this guy that floats in and out of town. And then she could have left town at the end and, and you know, flipped 
the the sheriff you know badge over to court and that would have been fine and she could have gone on they could have you know considered her this serial type character where she goes on to her next adventure just like the man with no name did uh but yeah flashbacks kind of they destroy all that they're completely unnecessary all right so i think we're going to be a this is going to be one another one right on the exact same same thing but who who is the mvp of this movie as if we didn't know <laughs> well okay so I, I gene hackman but here's the thing so when when we ask the question right it, you, you can see it from two different ways who's the vip in the movie meaning like what makes the movie stand out is it the cinematography is it the editing is it the soundtrack is it the performance but then when you look at sharon stone even though her character isn't well-written and her performance is questionable she is the producer and a star and she is the reason why they hired sam raimi russell crowe and leo dicaprio who is the most likable character in the movie so if you're gonna say gene hackman then i'm just gonna go and say sharon stone for being a great producer i was gonna say sam raimi sam raimi is I think I think it's interesting though to pick. I mean, I think Sam Raimi, and you'd probably agree, is the ultimate MVP of this. He makes this movie, and without him, this movie is lost to time. Like, if it's not for Sam Raimi's style, nobody's talking about the Quick and the Dead, right? Ever. I was thinking from Who's... like the producer's point of view, like in terms of like how the movie got made. But yeah, in terms of the yeah. artistic view of the movie, Sam Raimi. I mean, his fingerprints are on all over every frame of the movie. It's it's a Sam but... Raimi film, in and out. I do think it would be interesting to pick the secondary. And it is having picked Sharon Stone as a secondary MVP. I think I'd kind of agree with that one. Like she did really help get this movie made. And I think this movie was an important step for Raimi. You know, he looked back on it, I believe at one point in time and he thought he went too far overboard with the style. And then of course you see his next movie, a simple plan and just has none of that. <laughs> right. Like he goes completely un Raimi and he still crafts a, 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 a brilliant movie. But uh, I wonder if for him it was kind of like, okay, I need to tone this down. He talked about like adjusting his style to the material, and, and he thought maybe he didn't do that. I, w- I think this movie, people look back on it now far more kindly than they did when it first came out, as a lot of Sam Raimi movies, uh, that ha- a lot of his earlier ones that happened with. You know, Darkman wasn't exactly the greatest reviewed movie or received by audiences, and yet now... I would consider it to be an absolute masterpiece as far as comic it's book movies incredible. go. Incredible. It's incredible. We got to review it one day. But the thing is, Patrick, if he did not apply his trademark visual style and editing to this movie, it might just be his worst movie because it would just be a standard mm-hmm. Western with a terrible screenplay and a not so good performance from the lead, Sharon Stone. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is one of those ones where he has to look back now and be like, no, I did the right thing, actually. He elevated this material way up into something that people still remember. And that, that that's the most important part. And they don't remember it because it was a, an, an incredible train wreck. They remember it because it was so damn cool at times. <laughs> and it was so visually interesting. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, he's, he's the MVP. But Sh- Sharon Stone is definitely a good second. I got to give her all the credit in the world for... Um, for f- forcing that hire of him and Russell Crowe's very good in this movie as well. Like all the actors contribute. Gene Hackman, of course, is the the guy, but um, everybody else contributes quite a bit. Well, Crowe's really um, good because he has to do a lot of his acting without dialogue. Like it's all through his facial expressions and his his body movements. And so you have to give him credit because once again, not a good screenplay, and he makes the best of his character. Mm-hmm. Yep, he finds the little moments just like everybody else. He finds moments that that actually matter. And he seizes them. 
Uh, and that's what everybody did such a good job of in this. Uh, now, here's the thing. So it it it's hard to say, but uh, do you think that the Quick of the Dead will stand the test of time? That it stands the test of time and maybe will stand the test of time? So this is a, such a tricky question, and I kind of feel like maybe we should replace the question for future episodes. I'm not entirely sure, because when we review movies, older movies, we tend to review movies that we enjoy and we think that we want to watch again so therefore it stands a test of time in our eyes but Mm -hmm. like i think that if you're not a sam raimi fan like if you're if you're not into his visual style and his his trademarks if you don't like evil dead and army of darkness and dark man or even spider-man 2 this movie is not for you so i think it stands a test of time if only because for a casual moviegoer who does has no knowledge of who the filmmaker is if only because it's russell crowe's first appearance it's got this great performance from gene hackman uh sharon stone's in it and it's like you know it was a big deal for i think there's a lot of reasons why it stands the test of time in terms of like what it means for like the history of cinema and hollywood and these actors and dicaprio's in it so, I mean, I'm going to say yes, but I don't think we're ever going to say no to this question. Well, say I think you, you gave us a reason to say no, and I'm going to say I, I think that we can ask whether or not a movie will stand the test of time for the general public. And I would still – like, would I recommend this movie to anybody? And that answer is no. I would recommend His Girl Friday to anybody, and I'd recommend anybody go see Parasite. Uh, you know, there's lots of movies I'd recommend to anybody to check out. I'd recommend Brazil to to anybody just to to see what they think of it right to, i think it's a movie that that everybody should watch and you know i think that everybody can find something interesting in it even if they don't end up liking the movie i know that a lot of people are not going to like the quick and the dead you you hit upon it exactly you either love sam raimi's visual style or you will not like this movie at all and not everybody loves sam raimi's visual style as his career has shown like his his weakest performing movies are the ones where he goes all sam raimi um, he's got a loyal, uh, dedicated base of fans who do like that kind of stuff. And I count myself among them, but I can't say that. I don't think that people are going to be talking about the quick and the dead. I think it's going to fade away, uh, that, that, that all of us sort of Raimi lovers who remember what he wa- was like when he was making those crazy movies like evil dead two and dark man. Um, I think, uh, I think that's going to start to fade. And I think that the quick and the dead will get lost in that too. I think it already has. Like, it really has. Like, because we are huge fans of Sam Raimi, we will watch the movie and review it on our podcast. But, you know, I think you mentioned this before we started recording. When you look at YouTube, and YouTube has a lot of younger film critics or bloggers that do these reviews of movies. And a lot of times they review older movies, right? Not just newer movies. And I could not find anything on Quick and Dead. I found a trailer. I found Mm -hmm. one interview, one interview with Sam Raimi. And I think that was it, like a few clips, but I didn't see anybody doing reviews or features or retrospectives or it's the anniversary. Let's look back at this movie. I think it's one of those movies that people just like, I I think even Sam Raimi fans, they don't tend to revisit this movie ever. They go back, they watch Evil Dead 1, 2, Army of Darkness, Dark Man, Dark Man 2 maybe, but uh, The Gift, not even. Uh, Simple simple Plan, maybe Simple Plan, but yeah. I would recommend plan. Everyone thinks it's a Coen brothers movie. (laughs) Uh, I know. I know. (laughs) Cause it came out not too long after Fargo. Um, and you know, there's the Coen brothers and and Sam Raimi are forever tied together, you know? So, uh, in in many ways, you know, the Coen brothers were, were were participating in the editing of the evil dead, the original evil dead. Um, 
you know, that they're, 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 they are kind of linked um, in some ways. But yeah, I, I would I would recommend the gift. I could I could honestly recommend the gift to anybody. Anybody who wants to see a, a good creepy thriller or something like that, or oh, I want to watch, you know, some some kind of mystery movie, I'd, I'd, absolutely, I'll say, yeah, watch The Gift. Keanu Reeves' best performance. 100% agreed. And he's playing the biggest douchebag ever, but he's so good at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't recommend The Quick and the Dead, even to people who necessarily love Westerns, because I, it's not a traditional Western. It's got a more traditional screenplay, I guess, but it's not a traditional Western. Um, if I recommended this movie to my dad, who loves Westerns, like the Clint Eastwood Westerns, like, he would hate this movie. He would hate mm-hmm. it. Because it's not a traditional Western. It's not the kind of movie he would want to say. He would he would actually say it looks like a video game, or he would say it looks like a comic book. Yep, yep. And so it's I think it's for a specific audience. I think it is. It was a filmmaker who was still still developing his his style. I think it was the peak of his early style, and now he has since sort of moved on from that. Um, but yeah, I think it's an important movie for that reason. I'm a big fan of it. But I always, I absolutely adore Sam Raimi's, you know, especially his early style. So, yeah, but I don't know that it stands, that it will stand the test of time or that it even does. Now, I don't think I could convince a 20 something to go watch The Quick of the Dead and that they'd actually get anything out of it. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd tell them to go watch Evil Dead 2 instead and see, see what they think of that. All right. Do you think it passes the Howard test? That's this is an interesting question. Well, no. I, think we, I think we're going to know the answer to this one too. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at so, all. I mean, for, first of all, to explain what the Howard Hawks test is, in case somebody hasn't been listening to our older podcasts. So the Howard Hawks test, which some people also say is a Jean Luc Godard test, I'm not entirely sure who came up with it first, but it doesn't matter. The the idea is that. The movie has to have at least three great scenes. Great is the key word here and no bad scenes. But the thing about the quick and the dead is I don't think it has three great scenes. Like I'm talking about great and it has several bad scenes because of the flashback sequences. So it does not pass the Howard Hawks test in my eyes. I would give it that it has three great scenes. Uh, I would definitely say that the scene in the bar at night when when they're doing the uh, signing up for the um the contest and when court gets thrown in and they have the little showdown and standoff and whatever i think that's great scene number 1 um i would say that the 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 duel between Herod and and the kid is great scene number 2 i think that is an actual great scene and i also think that the scene where Herod gets court back into gunfighting i mean i i think that when he brings him into the kid's shop and it's time for his first gunfight to get the taste of blood, you know, or to get the taste of killing back in. Uh, I think that that is a great scene because the way that Raimi directs it, you can kind of see it again. You can see the juices start flowing in court and he's fighting it as much as he possibly can. And I, I really feel for him in that moment because he's being tempted by all this stuff that he used to love and by a guy that's absolutely merciless and knows exactly how, what buttons to push. Uh, so those would be my three. I, those are at least the three that I would name off the top of my head. But there are bad scenes in this movie, that's for sure. No question about it. And unfortunately, a lot of them involve Sharon Stone kind of not really knowing who her character is. And, and, you know, there's a scene with her and the little girl when when she first gets into town and she's unpacking her things. The little girl's asking her questions and she's not saying anything. And it's so awkward. And I get that she's trying to be the tough, mysterious gunfighter that just rode into town. But this little girl is standing a foot away from you 
like asking you direct questions and you're not even acknowledging your presence. Now that's, that goes beyond human, like Clint Eastwood wouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know, and the man with the, no name, he would have, he would have responded. He might've given a curt response. They didn't want to be bothered, but he would have said something. And Sharon Stone's just trying a little too hard. And there are several scenes. All the flashback stuff, you're right. There there are bad scenes in this movie. Luckily they're 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 quickly moved on from because this is a very up tempo kind of movie. But um so you're never really lingering on anything too bad. But yeah, there are You know what I found really weird before I forget, because I wanted to mention this earlier, is that in the movie she hooks up with Russell Crowe's character, the preacher, so they they have sex. Yeah, that was not in the theatrical version, though. Yeah, but earlier on, she makes out with the kid. So in the theatrical yeah. version, so 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 like, is there is it ever implied that there's a romance between them? Uh yes, it is. It is implied that they like each other, but it is never implied that they spend a night together. So that was never in the U.S. theatrical release. And in fact, if you watch it, like I, the uh, I think even the original DVDs don't have that. It's it's a, it's a extra scene, like a cut scene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they, they never even imply that they spent the night together. They just imply that there's kind of a liking between them. Cause you know, they keep talking and they're kind of, they're kind of friendly after a while, um, after they get over that initial hatred. But yes, it is. It's also implied that she spent the night with Leonardo DiCaprio. You never see them making out. It's implied that they, they spent the night together, but nothing happened because she actually, she tells she them. She was drunk. Yeah. yeah, she was drunk, but she knew he was too. And he was kind of make it seem like they slept together. But then she she quickly is like, don't act like that happened. You know it didn't. And he's like, ah, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, because the reason why I asked is because the DVD I have actually has the sex scene. She, okay, so there's a scene where clearly she gets drunk with DiCaprio and she wakes up. And it's implied that they didn't have sex, but... He know. tries to imply that they did. She, she corrects him on that, yeah. Um, yeah, and that, like... The only kiss that they share, the, in fact, the only time she kisses anybody is when she kisses DiCaprio after winning her first duel. And at that point, he's like, he, he's embarrassed because his girlfriend's been watching and he tries to, he turns around to his girlfriend and is trying to explain that he didn't do that, <laughs> that she grabbed him, you know. Um, that's it, though. That, otherwise, they don't, the, the theatrical version of that movie, theatrical cut, doesn't include any, any of that stuff. Uh, but that's, you know... I think the movie is better off for it. Frankly, I think they were right to cut that sex scene. Didn't really do anything. I've seen, I've, I've seen it because I've seen all the cut footage, and uh, yeah, it, it adds absolutely nothing. In fact, I like Court to stay in of character, sort of the principled character. Like there was no reason for for them to get together in that way. Uh, he's supposed to be the preacher, and he's going to be the new sheriff in town. So I like that he kind of stays that sort of uh, that he's gone from being the gunfighter to being a more uh, now he's a killer priest i don't know <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna be a killer for good um yeah it works for the movie anyway i still really really like the quick and the dead uh i hadn't seen it in i don't know maybe about a year i, I do watch it every now and again uh because i do like it and I, it just reminded me all over again just some of the, the things that i love about sam raimi movies and yes I, I can overlook the weak spots in it because i i still get one hell of a kick out of watching this guy just go to town and I want to – it's like when I watch that movie, I just want to study every camera move and, and see why he's doing what he's doing, You know how he has characters cross the frame and come into the frame and where he positions them around the room and how it can make his you – know, how he can utilize his camera to exploit the, the mise-en-scene and stuff like that. Like he's, he's definitely uh, – it, it's definitely a movie that you could just sort of pour over, especially if you're a young film student, to sort of learn how – 
how somebody can really, really ramp up camera use. Uh, with that, though, we should probably wrap this up. And uh, Rick, where can we find you online? Goombastomp.com or sortedcinema.com. It's basically two websites merged into one. And of course, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, everywhere. Um, Spotify? Spotify? We're on Spotify, YouTube. And on Twitter, I run the official Twitter account for Goombastomp, which is Goombastomp Mag and... Yeah, and you can find me online at Sword Cinema. I don't tweet a whole lot, but uh, I always promise that I'm going to try to do more. But then I go on Twitter and I realize it won't nothing to do with these people. But <laughs> but I still I still do look at it, <laughs> and I still I still will occasionally tweet out stuff, you know, for Goomba Stop. But definitely, if you want to like reach out any movie discussion, I am totally up for. Um, but also, you know, like us, uh, uh, what like us on Facebook, leave a comment on the site, give us a rating on on iTunes. You know, we we love getting those raises on iTunes. Uh, or if you leave a comment or a review, anything like that, like that stuff's always a big thrill. Um, just so we know that you're out there, that you like what you're doing, what we're doing. Uh, all right, that should do it for today's show. We will be back next week. We'll talk to you then. Here's the Eagle Butt Peacemaker. Solid ivory handle, Mexican emblem. Only thirty of these ever made. This is the uh, customized Remington new model, Army 44. It's probably more accurate than your Colt. Add the wooden handles removed and replaced with solid silver. Used with great success on um, 30, not 35 bank robberies by a slate owner. And this, well, this is the best help a man can get. The Smith & Wesson Schofield 45. Just meat and potatoes. Me and Jesse James think it's the best handgun in the world. Add the trigger guard removed. It saves drawing time. But don't ever wear it when you're drunk or you'll kill your feet. When's the last time you held a gun, Court? You know when. <laughs> Here. Got offered 120 for this Colt. Want to try it out? Got $120, Court? I don't have any money. The Lord provides me with everything I need.